Alright. Good morning, everybody. Morning. morning. <clears throat> Thank you so much for being here this morning. I really appreciate it. And glad to, uh, <laughs> glad to be together again. Never take it for granted. Um, a few things I just wanted to share with you. Um, a couple of things. In May, our speaker is going to be Jim Bostick. So Jim will be joining us. So excited to have him with us. Um, I'm, uh, June, I'm still working on. Um, and then July is going to be Art Rogers. And we're kind of going back and forth on the date in July because it's, you know, with July 4th week. But we're going to stick with the first Thursday. We decided that was best. So we're going to stick with the first Thursday in July. So uh, keep uh, please keep that on your uh, calendars. So um, second thing I also wanted to mention um, for those of you, a reminder or for those of you that may not be aware, but um, communion is in the chapel today till 9. So, um, you know, we're here. Great opportunity to... to um, uh, go up, go upstairs, uh, after, uh, after our time together. Okay. Um, besides that, I'm gonna, I'm here to introduce Robert today. So I put in my email, if you saw it, um, read it, um, um, <clears throat> we probably wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Robert. We definitely, actually, I can say we definitely would not have been here today if it wasn't for Robert. Um, Robert, at the time, uh, I'm not sure what his official position is. He was leading the men uh, men's ministry at Roswell or or whatever it was, but he had uh, he had tracked me down and we had had a had a, had a meeting and he wanted me to get involved in the, in, um, in on the committee. And I said, look, I at that point, you know, I was like, I'm not doing any more committees right now. You know, I'm committed out. I'm laughing because some of you have made that same decision, I guess. So. Uh, uh, been that. I said, look, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not interested in that. I said, but there has been something that's been on my heart. And I said, what's been on my heart is I, th- I would really, I would really like the men of the church to get to know each other a little bit better and to hear from one another. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, there's a lot of, and you've heard me say this before, right? There's a lot of men here that I've seen. For, now it's a little different for us because we've been, been together a little bit in a smaller group, but, Prior to, prior to the REMC men's group, there were a lot of you that I saw every week for 15, 20 years and hardly knew you. You know, you're pulling in the same direction. We're all pulling in the same direction. We're pursuing Jesus. You know, we're trying to, uh, to, 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 you know, be spiritual leaders in our homes and our communities and, and, you know, we're pulling in the same direction. We just, you know, need, wanted to get to know each other better. Um, and also saw an opportunity to, you know, have a group that got together on a regular basis that we could invite men, other men to, that maybe are a little bit earlier in their walk. So, um, anyways, I shared that with Robert, and he grabbed a hold of it, and uh, I was like, well, you need to do this then. You need to do a breakfast. Well, we, uh, <clears throat> I was like, well, I'm not so sure about that. You know, uh, yeah, I'll think about it. God, we've all done this too, right? God's put it on my heart, but uh, I'm not sure I'm going to, you know, take that step immediately, right? You know? When we delay and we delay and, you know, things like that. So Robert was, uh, Robert just kind of stayed with it and Tom, uh, Jones at the time as well was very passionate about it that we would do it and, um, then we got off and running. So the, the, the point there and, um, is one to say thanks for Robert because I, I, I really feel like this group has been a blessing to me. Hopefully, and I've, I've heard from, from you it's been a blessing to you and, um, we've had the opportunity to hear from a lot of men about a lot of the good work that God's done and, and he is doing. And my prayer is that, that throughout this process that, that, you know, the Lord has, you know, planted seeds in hearts and, and things have happened because of the, because of our time together. Um, so, 
Robert encouraged, you know, the mission of the men's group I talk about is to encourage men to take their next step in their faith walk. Well, at that, at the time, the next step in my faith walk was to start this group. And I would not have done it if Robert hadn't encouraged me. So it's awesome to have you here today. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for, uh, for, for your encouragement. And we look forward to receiving some more of it this morning. Thank you. I uh, I tend to wander when I talk. I'll try to stay around the microphone, but if I if I move, just say just point me back to the microphone because I know it's sometimes easier to hear uh, uh, from the voice. And, and thank you, Tim, for for appreciate that. Um, at the time, basically, there was just a gap. There was a gap, and uh, Tom was working on some men's group stuff, and there was a need. And I just maybe I was just too new to the church to know better. Um, but I just stepped into it. So, uh, and then, and then God did the work. That's for sure. Because I didn't know what the heck I was doing by saying, "Okay, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll help out." But um, so, thank you, Tim, for for taking that. And I just will say that uh, you know, Tim at the time had uh, it was just real obvious that Tim's heart was in men's ministry. Um, wasn't sure how that was going to actually look, but. Um, God planted that seed pretty deep, so thank you for for taking that. Um, yeah, I was kind of involved in the beginning, and I haven't been here for however long this has been going on, because to be honest with you, this is intimidating for me. This is probably the most intimidating thing I've ever done, of all the things I've ever done. Um, and I'll try to unpack that a little bit in, in my conversation here, but getting up in front of a group of men um, is not my comfort zone at all. Um, I have a lot of comfort zones in speaking and getting up in front of people, but getting up in front of men is not, and I'll try to lead you to why that's the case. But um, let me say this. I, I accepted Christ when I was 12. I was at a uh, an Imperials concert. I don't know if anybody remembers Russ Taff and the Imperials back in the day. Um, kind of that Jimmy Swagger, that whole time frame. I accepted Christ when I was 12, me and about 5,000 other people apparently at the time. Um, and I spent the next, how I can't do the math quickly, I'm 53 now, I can't, I spent the last amount of time since then trying to figure out what that meant. Um, and it really became a bit of a crisis when I was, just before I turned 50, um, spent that whole year um, kind of in, really in counseling, trying to figure out what this whole thing meant. Because I had that relationship um, with Jesus and did a lot of things, but couldn't really articulate, couldn't really speak about it well. Um, and I'd like to start off giving you a little bit of table time first. I know sometimes y'all do that last. But I want you to just go around the table and each guy say, answer two questions. Who are you and what do you do? Okay? You, who are you and what do you do? <laughs>
Well, gentlemen, I wanted to, uh, it's, it's always, it's always uh, a bit of a, a decision that one has to make when you, when you release control of the room, and I, I can say this because I've taught middle school, and it's one of the things up here, but, um, so I, I, I don't necessarily want to interrupt because I'm hearing a lot of awesome things. Um, and I'll try to give you some time at the end to kind of revisit that. So if you didn't get a chance to share, um, definitely do that. I wrote up on the board um, uh, c- kind of some things. Cause, because when I go to, my wife is our primary breadwinner in our house. And I spend a lot of time going to events as her trophy husband. Um, <laughs> no, I do, I do. How do you think I got in the Masters? I can't afford that ticket. No, um, no, and 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 it's always it's it's a it's a it's a question that's frozen me. Um, as much as I've been able to speak to people and as, as you know many words as I can come up with, it's always frozen me when somebody asks me, uh, you know, who are you? Well, I'm Robert. Okay, I'm Robert. What do you do? And I literally freeze because I don't know how to answer the question. Because I have a lot of things that I have done, I have a lot of roles that I have played, but I don't necessarily know what I do on a day-to-day basis, except for, well, and it gets complex. So, um, so what I'm going to try to do is connect all of these bubbles um, in a way that makes sense, and hopefully in a way that uh, will allow uh, you to hear maybe how God's worked in my life a little bit. Um, I was born in 63. My mom was 17 when I was born. My dad was 21. They were quite young. I often joked that my mom and I grew up together. Um, and it's not really outside too far away. Um, had my, my brother Randy was born 11 months after me. My brother Rick was born uh, a year and a half after that. So by the time my mom was 21, she had three kids at home. And uh, my dad spent a year at, uh, not a year, so a semester at Purdue. And, uh, that college wasn't for him, and so he started and uh, basically has worked his whole life in the tool making industry as a journeyman tool maker. Now, um, my mo- my mom stayed home with us, and uh, and you'll understand why that, that uh, plays a role here in a second. Because early in the, in their in their marriage, they got divorced, um, and one of the most the earliest memories I have of that is uh, my parents coming to me when I was about six and saying, Robert. Um, we're going to go different directions. Who do you want to live with? Yeah. And um, I said, um, what do you say as a six-year-old, right? How do you answer that question as a six-year-old? So I said, well, mom, you know. Um, and, and what I remember from that, and it took me a long time and a lot of counseling to fig- to get past this, but I remember my dad just getting up. He didn't say anything. He just get up, and he started, just started walking downstairs, and I... And I I didn't know what, you know, I didn't know what was going on really, and I remember just running after him saying, you know, Dad, what did I do? Um, because he was really upset, one of my earliest memories, and it really, it really set for me early on, um, as I look back on it, it set some tendencies in how I view God, and, and how I try to act in relationship to God. I spent a lot of my time in my life, um, trying to please God trying to 
make sure that God was never disappointed in me, um, mostly through doing things with and for other people. Um, I was born and raised in Indiana. That was uh, that's where we lived. I went to Purdue and uh, graduated in their, from the pharmacy program. So I was a pharmacist for a number of years. That's where I met my wife, Holly. Uh, we've been married almost 30 years, um, which is unusual on both her side and my side of the family. Um, all of my brothers uh, have been divorced and married multiple times and uh, several on her side of it as well. So that's a, we've just persevered through it. Um, so I spent the first few years of my life uh, practicing pharmacy. I practiced in Virginia. I lived outside uh, Washington, D.C. for 364 and a half days, <laughs> precisely. Oh, my gosh. Um, is the quintessential place you love to visit, but you don't want to live there. Uh, we lived actually in Temple Hills, Maryland. If you know the area, it's just on the other side of the bridge, down on the kind of the south side of the Beltway. Um, that was an experience. Um, moved back to uh, Greenville, Ohio. Actually uh, moved uh, there because there was a pharmacy uh, position open kind of on the edge of uh, Winchester, Indiana, actually, uh, right on the border there with the Indiana and Ohio. And my wife was moving back and she got on with Corning Incorporated. Um, now, my wife, I actually married a rocket scientist. Seriously, she's an aeronautical engineer. Um, so if you ever wonder what that's like, it's, it's not as uh, glamorous as it's made out to be. Um, but we moved to, uh, to Greenville, Ohio, and I became uh, involved in the youth group there, uh, just working with Sunday school, just volunteer, uh, my wife and I, and I had an opportunity to go to Israel uh, with our pastor and four ladies that were hard to keep up with um, because they were in their, like, 80s, and they were, when the pastor and I were, we really had a hard time keeping up with them, but I uh, got a chance to go to Israel, had a lot of awesome memories from Israel, but one that comes to mind and is formative was I was sitting on a rock outside a, a fish restaurant on the Sea of Galilee, and um, it, it just, it wasn't an audible voice, It wasn't, but it just became clear to me that I really liked doing youth ministry. It just it was something I resonated with. So I went back and asked my pastor, I said, how could I become a youth minister? And we kind of talked through it and he encouraged me to, to go back to a seminary to kind of get some, you know, background training. So I did. I went to a seminary in uh, Dayton, Ohio, United Theological. Got my master's in religious education and did youth ministry for a number of years. Um, then my wife decided that uh, she wanted to go back and get her MBA, and her company agreed to pay for that. So we moved to Corning, New York. And she went to Cornell to do her MBA. Well, we had two small children at the time. They're two oldest. Uh, Chelsea was three and Austin was one. And they had been in daycare. We didn't know what to do. So I said, well, I'll just stay home because my youth ministry work was primarily on the weekends. And she would be gone during the week to school. So it was a very uninformed decision. Um, and was probably the most impactful thing that we ever decided to do that I never thought through. Um, so I'm primary caregiver most of my life. I just stay at home dad, Mr. Mom, however you want to call it. Um, I'm a bit of an expert at that. And that really leads me to why this is so intimidating because most of my experience I've worked with women, um, it, it, whether in my career or at staying home with the kids, you know, with the play groups, I, I just naturally kind of have come to understand and resonate with what most uh, with what a lot of women go through in terms of being the stay-at-home person. Um, the responsibility for the house, the responsibility for the kids, 
the cleaning, the cooking, the um, whatever it needed to be done. That's what I did as primary caregiver for a number of years, and I, I enjoyed it immensely. It's an incredible opportunity. And I always, when I talked about that with guys, I had two reactions. One, the guys would say, um, oh, heck no, I will never do that. Uh, you're nuts. Um, and I'm like, yeah, in a way I am. Um, but a lot of guys would say, oh man, you're just, you're so lucky. I would love to be able to do that. And I don't know if anybody had that in your career where, you know, you looked at what your wife did and you said like, you know what, I really would like to, to spend more time with my kids in this fashion. So I had some advice for those guys. I said, okay, do this. Send your wife away for a month wherever she wants to go and then spend time with your kids and do the cleaning, do the cooking, do the shopping, uh, take care of the, you know, everything that has to go on in the house. Um, and then when she comes back, ask yourself again if that's really what you want to do because this is not babysitting. It's really not. And, and so, but, um, I, I was, um, so guys seem to either envy or, uh, pray for me. I don't know which one it was. Um, so I spent a lot of time in, and that's mostly what I still do. It's been about 20 years that that's been most, my primary organizing, um, work has been around that. Uh, after Holly, so we lived in New York, uh, to do that. After Holly got out, they asked her, said, uh, where in the world would you not go uh, with your MBA? She said, well, we'd never live in China. So we moved to Wiesbaden, Germany. Uh, which is an extraordinarily awesome place to be. It's a beautiful country. Uh, we were there for about 14 months. She's doing her work thing. I'm doing my stay-at-home thing. And they asked her if she wanted to move to China. So we learned early on, never say never, because there's an angel that is dedicated to tracking those comments. <laughs> and the angel reports periodically to the Lord. Robert and Holly said they would never live in the... We actually called it the Far East. That's how we... We did. That's how we said it. We would never live in the Far East. Um, and so God has a sense of humor and said, well, okay, we'll test that out. So we actually, when she got the call, we're in Wiesbaden, we're loving life, that's international school, kids are doing great, I'm settling in, I have a Volvo S70 that's just, ah, stunningly gorgeous, you know, and I'm driving 200 miles an hour on the Autobahn, um, and they want us to go to Shanghai. So we actually took a trip to say no, we tried to figure out a way to say no, and we got over there and we really couldn't figure out a reason to say no. We weren't enthusiastic about it, but we couldn't figure out a reason to say no. So we went over there and Holly's doing her corning thing and they're building a plant. And um, and we were lucky because we were the first expats um, from corning to live on in mainland China. So the compensation package was extraordinary. Uh, not in, necessarily in terms of the salary, but corning insisted that every three months we had to go on an R&R. We had to leave. We had to go on vacation. They would pay us to do that. Nobody knows <laughs> the trouble I've seen. Yeah, it was rough. Um, and, and we actually we were in we were in China for Y2K, the whole transition. And Holly got the call, and and the people were, they were freaking out. They didn't know what was going to happen. So like, you got to leave the country. Okay, where should we go? Anywhere you want. It's got to be, but it's got to be civilized, you know, it's got to be a country that they could predict that when Jan uh, December 31st became January 1st, 
you know, there wasn't going to be a meltdown. Okay, so we went to Australia and spent two weeks over over Y2K. Um, but it was a, a learning process. And, and in this process, um, one of the things we figured out was there weren't a lot of churches there. Um, and I had I had mixed experiences with church over my years. I really didn't go to church until I was about 12. And oddly enough, I was confirmed in United Methodist Church um, by a pastor who was about 165 years old. <laughs> and gradually, so I did that. So I was confirmed, but I, it just didn't connect with my faith. So I had the going to church part, and then I had the kind of, you know, what my faith was about part. Um, and, and so subsequently we did the United Methodist Church and went to an Assembly of God church. Then we went to a non-denominational church. And then we ended up in a group of folks that met in a barn where the women still covered their heads and, 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 were, and were quiet. And I guess my, my point there is that my church experience at that point in my life went from something that was very kind of predictable and, and, and certainly mainstream to something that was not. Um, I've, I've spoken in tongues in church. I mean, it's so from United Methodist to Pentecostal, there's probably no church experience that I haven't gone through. So that was my church background. When I went to college, I really didn't go to church. Um, picked it back up when I met Holly. So we get to uh, China. The, um, there really, there's one English speaking service in the whole city. It's 20 million people. There's one English speaking service. And so we, we, we try, and we didn't live on that side of the river. We lived on the newer side of the river. And so we're trying to work with the school to establish a church community on that side of the river. And oddly enough, the international school that the kids ended up there, uh, Concordia, uh, had permission, it was a Christian school explicitly, and actually had permission from the government to teach religion, to be a religious institution, to incorporate that into the school day. And I just found it odd that, you know, I grew up in America and, and lived in Germany, and it wasn't until I got to communist China that my kids were really allowed to have religion in school as just a normal part of the foundation. I thought it was just kind of blew my mind a little bit, but um, gradually over that time, um, I came to uh, walk away from church. Not from God, but from the religious institution that I knew as church. Um, some incidents that just, you know, really resonated badly with me um, in terms of um, my experiences. Um, yeah, okay, I'll tell the story. Um I had an opportunity to be, when I graduated seminary and went to New York, there was a very small congregation um, attached to Horseheads United Methodist, which was a big church, a lot like this. It was a very, very tiny one out in Catlin, New York, and they had like 12 people. Um, but those 12 people did not want to come to heart. They wanted, Mike, you probably understand what I'm talking about. It's just one of those little churches that it was, it, it was dying, but it was not dead. Okay, dying in the sense of a small. So I had a chance to kind of be there their pastor on Sunday, so preaching and stuff like that. Had an opportunity to do that in China, so I get up there and, 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 and one of the one of the messages um, that I preached on, I got up and I said, um, before I started the message, I just said, uh, you know, is there anybody here who feels like that you are ready to go out and just be salt and light and serve others in, in Shanghai? And a number of people, you know, raised their hands, and I said, okay, you're excused, you can leave. 
Because this is this message is not for you. So if you feel like you're ready to do that, it's okay. And I did it in a way. I was honestly giving them permission to stand up and they because just go do it, right? Um, yeah, that didn't sit well with the the guys who had appointed themselves leaders of the church. Um, so they asked me, a little like John Wesley, I guess. Uh, not to do that anymore, not to preach anymore. So um, th- there are just a couple of incidents like that that really became um, disruptive to my church attendance, let's put it that way. But uh, over time, God did bring together a group of people, and God really, really worked um, on the leadership in China. There was, a, there was a, a, a noticeable change over the 12 years that we lived there. Um, in the leadership of China and the, and the degree to which they became open to religious activity that they did not control. Okay, now understand this. There are tons of Christians in China, but they're all under the auspices of the, uh, the, the CCC, the, the Chinese Christian Council, that kind of controls that the, the, uh, three self movement. It's tightly controlled by the government. Uh, there's also an underground situation in China. Um, and those tend to be people who are politically opposed to what how China's run. Um, so it took some time because they had to be confident that what we wanted to do when we established this this other service was not to disrupt uh, what was going on. Uh, because they, the one thing that the Chinese government can't tolerate is social disruption, unless they orchestrate it, and then it's okay. Um, if you remember the one that the jet was they down the jet over there, our jet, and there were some demonstrations at the, there in China, and that was all orchestrated. But anyway, I digress. Um, so we're in China. We're doing this, uh, you know, this thing. Um, I'm staying home with the kids, and I had an opportunity to um, become the director of the community center there, um, and that didn't work out. And then I had an opportunity to become the director of admissions, and initially it didn't work out because there was a guy who had a master's degree in this area, and they, they thought he would be more qualified, which is fine. Not a big deal. I'd been there, you know, six or so years already. And um, he went on vacation and didn't come back. So the head of school said, um, as I was covering for this guy, I said, well, why don't you just stay on? So that's how I became director of admissions at the international school, um, <clears throat> trying to help people figure out whether this was the right school. And uh, for a lot of people, it wasn't. And that was difficult. It was difficult to tell people that have been told by their company, you will move there in June, um, that we don't have space for your kid in the school. Um, and I say that because as an explicitly Christian school, I often got the response, well, you're a Christian school. Don't you follow Jesus? Yes, we do. But I don't have a reading specialist or I don't have the, the, the resources in place to educate your child. Um, especially given the fact that we're charging you $20,000 a year to do it. So it, w- it, was, it was a challenge. It was a challenge to say, how do you communicate? How do you act from a faith perspective for people who have a, a great need? And I don't know if anybody, has anybody in here moved overseas as an expat? Okay. When you take your family overseas, did you take your families? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, primary primary concern at that point is not your job, right? It's the family, right? It's getting the kids settled in school, the wife, whatever. Um, and that was very difficult. And it's, people just couldn't understand, even as a Christian school, we could not educate every child. 
We just didn't have the resources. We were very small. Um, anyway, so that was my director of admissions um, experience. After a while, I really enjoyed substitute teaching, so I went back and I got my teaching certificate, and I became a middle school teacher there. Um, taught seventh grade math, science, and religion. Um, and that was an opportunity that was um, afforded to me by a very graceful man who looked at my resume, looked at all this other stuff that I had done. And I actually asked him, I said, Dave, you know, I'm director of admissions at the time, and I said, Dave, you look at my resume, and you've, and you've hired people before. What do you see when you look at my resume? He says, I see a guy who doesn't know what he wants to do. <laughs> Dave was very candid, but one of the most gracious souls. I said, I appreciate that, because once I left pharmacy, I simply became a trailing spouse who filled in gaps. Okay, and this is start does a little bit of connection here. Um, but I said, but would you hire me if I, you know, I have my teaching credentials? Would you hire me? And he said, because I know you and because I've worked with you for this last two years, yes, I would. I know who you are. So I went back. I got my teaching credentials, and uh, and he graciously enough hired me. So I taught middle school. Um, I didn't plan on teaching middle school because going back to my youth, I always did high school youth ministry. And I always left the middle schoolers to somebody else. Because we all know what middle schoolers are like, right? Because you either have one, you either had a middle schooler, you have one, or you got one coming up, and you got a sense of like, man, I'm telling you what, this is a crazy time in a kid's life in middle school. So I, and I wasn't planning, I was going to do high school biology or chemistry, either one, kind of go back to my pharmacy roots. Um, but the middle school opportunity was there, so I took it. And, uh, again, there's, I think, alongside the location angel, there's a vocational angel. That when you say, I'll never, Robert said he would never teach middle school. <laughs> Reported it to the Lord, and the Lord said, yeah, okay. Um, anyway, loved it. Taught there, was able to teach there for a number of years. Um, we actually lived in China for 12 years. Our two oldest children... Our biological kids uh, basically grew up there. They both graduated from international schools. And uh, before we left, we adopted. We adopted our youngest, Jason, who is now finishing seventh grade here. Um, and interest, two interesting pieces about that. The first interesting piece is that um, our biological kids um, born in America were raised in China. And our Chinese-born adopted child is being raised in America. <laughs> And sometimes the conversations between those two groups are very, very funny because our older two kids, they never went to public school in America. They were like in preschool when we left the country. Um, so in a lot of ways, they don't really get American culture. And Jason is as American as anybody I've ever seen. I mean, that dude, you know, like Jason, like he will acknowledge he's born in China because he looks Chinese, obviously. But other than that, there's not a single thing that he resonates with with his Chinese. Jason, you want to go back to, to China? No, I'm good. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, you know, there's an interesting story. Uh, Holly had uh, Jason in the marketplace um, uh, one time with with the two kids, Austin and 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 Austin. If you've ever seen my son, is blonde hair, blue eyed. You know, just all American looking boy. Okay. And uh, so they're in the marketplace, and 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 Jason um, actually looked at Holly and said, "Did you adopt him?" Because 
because to Jason, Austin looked like the odd-looking one in the family. Um, so it's just, yeah, just curious. You know, an adoption is is kind of a curious thing, and uh, and it came about at an interesting time. It was a time that I had just gotten back into director of, in, of admissions. I was back in the workforce. And all of a sudden, I'm getting ready to do this. I'm getting ready to do it full time now because the head of schools asked me, and my wife comes and says, "We should we adopt another one?" I'm like, "You just want me to be barefoot and pregnant all the time." <laughs> and I know you laugh, but that's exactly the feeling I felt. Of like, you know, my kids are now in middle school, the older two, and they really don't need me around. I have time at home. I can go back to work. Okay. And my wife wants me to raise another kid. Oh, Lord, nobody knows. Um, so it actually took a long time for me to reconcile because I had to wrestle with, a, maybe you've done it, but I know that some of your wives have gone through this, where you know your kids are to a point where they do not need you at home full-time all the time. You've organized the house to do the cleaning and cooking outside, and you have large chunks of time that you can dedicate to something else. Perhaps... Working, all right. Um, now the good thing was in China, um, they have a lot of Filipino uh, ladies that are there illegally uh, working as caretakers, and we were able to secure that, and, and that actually helped the situation. So I was able to stay in the workforce and adopt Jason and kind of do the, the, the things at the same time. Um, but it, it's just again, it's one of those things where. No, Lord, I've raised the first two. <laughs> I mean, I'm done. And there's another angel up there. It's your kid raising angel. The Hulsa said they were done. And the Lord said, oh, really? Um, but it, it's just one of those things that unfolded. Um, the adoption was not something we planned, but it's something that once it became... <laughs> Uh, once it came on our radar, was very, very natural. And, and we feel so... Well, we can't imagine what life would have been like without having Jason. Um, he's just been such a, an incredible blessing to our family. Um, I don't know where we would have been. I don't know what we would have been doing. But um, So anyway, that's kind of part of... So as a, doing an educator in Shanghai, China. Finally, after um, six years, Holly... Switched jobs. She worked for Corning for six over there and then worked with a company called Beckhart. It's a Belgian company. Um, world's largest manufacturer of wire products. Never knew that, but apparently we all need them. And, um, but after six years with them, they said, uh, it's, it's time to move you back. Um, and at this time, Chelsea had been two years in college back here. Austin was getting ready to go to college. So I said, sure, it is, it is time. So we came back and they said, uh, well, our North American office is in Marietta, Georgia. All right, where's Marietta, Georgia? I had no idea. Um, I grew up up north. Uh, so we moved to Marietta in 2011, and uh, we've been here ever since. Um, and things are going swimmingly in, in that time. Uh, Jason's in school. Holly's doing her thing with Beckhart. And then uh, in January of, let me get this right, in January of 2015, they reorganized, and all of a sudden, Holly was without a job. Now, this was a crisis point for me because I had, at this point, as I spoke about my resume, I had absolutely, through the years, killed my earning potential. It was great as a pharmacist. It, well, no, not really great as a youth, 
Youth minister is not an, an occupation to go into for the money. Um, educator maybe, but the problem is, you know, I was not certified in Georgia, whatever. Um, and even if I was, we weren't going to replace her, um, you know, executive VP salary with anything that I could do. And it really weighed on me pretty heavily because she's trying to find a job uh, somewhere around here, and I had nothing to offer. Uh, so. Thankfully, uh, she was on a package, so that bought us a little bit of time. But in that moment of crisis, um, I discovered franchising and uh, ended up buying a, a franchise over in Johns Creek. Um, it's the, by the way, it's the Roosters Men's Grooming Center over in Johns Creek. If, if you know that, it's a, it's a place where guys can go and be taken care of without having to go to a women's salon. It's got a big barber shop feel to it. Um, and the ladies are great. So I have been a small business owner for about 18 months and I have enjoyed that. I've been involved in the PTA and the foundation coach basketball, um, a lot of different things up there. But um, it's not widely known, but I, I guess I can say it now because I'll make the announcement to my staff. Um, we, we've got to move again because whenever you get settled, the Lord has a way of shaking things up sometimes. And... Uh, Holly did find a job at the January of last year, um, doing something that she does very, very well. She's very good at what she does, but it's in Augusta. And she's been commuting back and forth to Augusta for the last 15 months, about every week. And it's, it's taken a toll on the family. And so we took a serious look at what we needed to do. Um, so we're once again pulling up stakes, and uh, in June we will move to Augusta. And put roots down in Augusta, and uh, I will. Uh, I'll have to figure out what I'm going to get out of the deal because this is how I've always worked. Okay, I'll be your trailing spouse, but I want to get something out of every deal. You know, <laughs> I got my truck. The truck was uh, the truck. Here's the tactic, guys. It just said moving back to Georgia, so I want a truck. He says, "Why?" I said, "I don't know. I just want a truck. Never had one. Just wanted a truck." I haven't driven my own car for 12 years. So um, we move here and we buy a, a Hyundai Genesis, beautiful car, and then she buys a Pilot, a Honda Pilot. And uh, I look like all your wives driving around East Cobb County. So, uh, so I told her, I said, well, I want a Corvette. I've always wanted a Corvette. Um, I said, no, it really doesn't fit the budget, whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's very impractical, can't put Jason in the back seat. I don't matter, Jason doesn't have to sit in the back seat. He can get a ride with his friends. <laughs> or you can. I don't know which, but uh, it's a two-seater. Actually, went to the Corvette factory said, oh, yeah, you can ship it to California. They'll custom put it in a back seat. I'm like, nope, nope, can't do that. So anyways, that wasn't going to work. So I said, well, fine, I want a boat. No, you can't drag a boat back and blah, 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 whatever. I said, fine, I want an RV. She said, what if I take you to get a truck? <laughs> well, it took me three years, but I got my truck. Um, no, you just scale it up so that, you know, that first thing all of a sudden is looking pretty reasonable. But anyway, um, so, <laughs> and I don't know if we do that with God sometimes, too. Maybe we do. You know, maybe we just keep scaling our demands for God until that first thing we ask for is like, you know, Oh, Lord, it'd really be good if I had whatever. And then, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe we negotiate that way with God too. But, um, anyway, so we'll move to Augusta. 
have uh, and I have to sell my business, so I can't continue in that. So again, that's a and it's my way of saying if I step over here, can y'all hear me? Can you hear me? Okay, my all right. It's my way of saying that none of this really makes sense to me. It really, I, I really struggle to make any sense of this at all. So when somebody says to me, "What do you do?" I honestly don't know how to respond. I can talk about what I've done. I can give you my name. I can tell you where I live. I can say that I own a Roosters Ministry Center in Johns Creek. But I really struggle with who I am. And it's intimidating for me to come in front of this group because I think so many of you have an identity that I am envious of. I talked, I'm not sure where he's sitting right now. I talked to one gentleman who's a, who's a pilot. He's a retired pilot. Um, there you go. Thanks, Dave. Um, whatever the engineer, toolmaker, pastor, educator, counselor, businessman. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what, uh, I don't know how to answer that question. So for me, it's, it's just a little intimidating sometimes to come up here, not because of you guys. But because of me, it's because this background that I have, this mishmash, this 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 resume that is just blotched. <laughs> um, until the Lord gave me this, and if you if you've got Romans eight on your phone or somewhere handy, um, you can read it. But otherwise, I'll uh, I'll pull it up um, because I don't want to I don't want to necessarily just summarize it. <clears throat> Romans 8.14, oh, went too far, sorry. There we go. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, I just want to percolate in your mind just for a little bit because it's still percolating in mine. I'm a son of God, and that makes me a joint heir with Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that brings sense to all of this. So my challenge now is to learn to speak more of this as I speak to people because this really for now all of the other stuff is important and God has worked in 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 many ways in the other stuff but who am I I'm a child of God and joint heir with Jesus Christ what do I do it goes back to the great commandment Jesus was asked what do I do to earn eternal salvation what's the greatest commandment and he says it's very simple. You love God with everything you are and you love your neighbors. And it really is that simple in terms of saying it. It doesn't play out easily sometimes. And it's hard to love your neighbors, um, especially if your neighbors are politically different than you or religiously different than you or ethnically different from you or economically different from you. There's a lot of different things that come into play when we're asked to love our neighbors. But for me, this is it. For you, I hope this is also it in some form or fashion. Thanks.
Thank you so much. That was, uh, that was great. Um, fantastic way, um, just a fantastic way to start the day. So again, I want to thank you all for being here very much. I want to thank you, uh, Robert, uh, for sharing and, uh, I want to wish you and your families a happy Easter. Um, with that, Robert, would you yeah. please close us in prayer? Thanks. Yeah, Abba Father, thank you so much for being part of my life. It wasn't always obvious, but I knew you were always there. And I just pray that as these men go forth and they seek you and they seek to be your hands and feet in this world and they seek to love your neighbors, that you would reveal yourself to them in ways that are unmistakably, unmistakably obvious. That we are your children, we are joiners with Jesus Christ. And with that, we thank you for what your son did on Easter. And we thank you for what you did in resurrecting him. Strengthen every man here. Let them know they are loved. Let them know they are children of God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.